Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Douglas Vincent Wesselman, a.k.a. Otis 12, won a debut dagger from the British Crime Writers Association for his novel, Imp, being the lost notebooks of Rufus Wilmot Griswold in the matter of the death of Edgar Allan Poe. His first novel, concerning a sociopath who manipulates a psychopath to kill a pedophile on the albino farm, won the 2005 London Book Fair competition. Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Russo named his short story Life Among the Bean Bugs, runner-up for the North American Journal's Kurt Vonnegut Prize, and his tale, The Goodness of Trees, received a $10,000 Templeton Prize that allowed Mr. Wesselman to purchase an antique blacklight, a songbird kiln, and pay off his oncologist's gambling debts. His fiction has been published by The North American Review, Crime Spree, The Reader, and in anthologies such as the cult classic Expletive Deleted by Bleak House, including Otis's triple X homage to O. Henry, entitled Fluff and The Purpose Reader. His new novel, Tales of the Master, The Book of Stone, was released in the US in 2016. As Otis, Wesselman has been a fixture in Omaha radio and TV for 40 years, working at Z92, CD105, KFAB and KKAR, and currently hosts the morning show on Classical 90.7. He is an inductee into the Nebraska Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Nebraska Radio Hall of Fame. Of late, he has fallen in with bad company, poets, and does occasional readings with such reprobates whenever asked. Despite rumors to the contrary, Wasserman lives in the middle of North America, though he is considering moving to one of the edges. Otis, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Stuart. Nice to be asked. Always nice to be asked. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me, uh, this, this last phrase from your bio, um, he's considering moving to one of the edges. Yeah. Uh, I, I, we can interpret that geographically, and we, we, we can talk about that in a minute. But I, I think it seems to be more of a statement about your life. And I wonder if you think about having lived a life always at the fringe or in the gaps or looking at the edges of things. It, it's it's kind of interesting. I, you know, uh, my brother-in-law, who was my best friend for several years before he let me marry his sister, uh, Kent Bellows, was a great artist, uh, um, uh, the namesake of the Bellows mentoring program at the Jocelyn. And Kent, uh, just an extremely uh, proficient uh, artist, great inspired artist. I, I'll go on and look him up, Google him, Kent Be Bellows. But uh, we used to talk about the creative process all the time, and we always said, yes, it's edge work. It's edge work. And the trick in being creative is being right on the edge and even teetering a bit is where the richest creativity is. The danger is for artists is that a lot of times we fall. <laughs> because we, we risk working that edge. And so, yeah, in a way, though, I've had, a, in, in a sense, somewhat of a conventional career in that I've worked for radio stations owned by big corporations and small. I've generally been allowed to kind of do what I want within certain boundaries, of course. But, yeah, edge, the edges. Everyone thinks about living on the edge, don't, don't you? It's certainly aspirational, right? It takes a very good creative artifact to make the everyday profound. 
and and otherwise we aspire for pick an era the james dean moment or some other expression of living life to the full in some way maybe breaching norms uh, telling the truth in ways that are provocative it's certainly it whether whether <laughs> you know the the word profound is so intimidating because a lot of creativity isn't profound it's just simply true and and it's a simple truth that does not have to knock you over the head or anything that word profound sounds so heavy that edge work is i think when you work the edge you just get this view a wider view uh, than you might otherwise and 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 that said you still try to you know live an ordered life of sorts that takes into uh consideration people around you <laughs> another uh um what's a hazard of being an edge worker is you can do a lot of harm to people around you as you work that edge in somewhat a monomaniacal way this it's always it's always the balance. Once again, you're on the edge, but it's the balance, you know, that keeps all the forces in tune. And the, yeah, and then we fall. <laughs> well, your bio references this triple X homage to O. Henry. So, you know, talking about <laughs> the edge, maybe tipping over, maybe even offending some people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe I'm picking on that, but maybe there are other examples of, of work where you look back on it and you just reflect that that really was at the edge or even over it. Yeah, well, Fluff as a story, and, and it's in a collection called Expletive Deleted. <laughs> I can't tell you what the original title of the collection was going to be. I literally can't tell you. Um, uh, the publisher came up with Expletive Deleted because that was the original title. Um, uh, and uh, we all wanted to do uh, a just really digressive noir. It was a bunch of people who were tired. At the time, I was hanging out with some crime writers, and there was a Minnesota noir collection, L.A. noir by you know New York writers put together New York noir. And so we were all together in Chicago one day. We decided to do blank noir, which meant, you know, way intentionally offensive hopefully uh and and that's what fluff was and oh henry is one of my was some of the first short stories i ever read uh if the listener isn't familiar with him he's very goes back a ways uh he was syndicated in magazines and newspapers and then put collections together the gift of the magi being his famous story where the woman sells her hair to buy her husband a, a watch fob for Christmas while the husband sells the watch to buy her some combs for her magnificent hair. The, the ultimate in sentimentality. Uh, and so actually based on that story, I wrote Fluff, which is, yeah, triple X. <laughs> but yeah sometimes on the edge you know you have different uh sometimes an artist should offend at least make somebody risk offending people because you can't you can't go easy on people all the time other times uh challenge with an idea that they hadn't thought of or or just the different it's on the edge the different view that you can maybe communicate you know whether it's in writing or art music whatever you know it's that view that the artist has, I think so. So, what have been some of 
some of the themes in your writing, and we, we can talk about other elements mm. of, of your career, but you've obviously been a fairly prolific writer. So I'm, I'm curious about where has the motivation come from? What are some of the themes? What occupies your mind? Well, it, it must be said that I, 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 I really, my influences were people like Sid Caesar, and especially Ernie Kovacs uh, uh, and his blackout humor. I, I was primarily interested in comedy. And uh, and as a result, I think even in my fiction that's uh, purportedly more serious, uh, the, the central theme and all, it's, it, no one's ever asked me that. And I would have never thought I knew. But I think it is. It's absurdity. I think absurdity is it is the way I see most of the world through that lens, whether it's tragic absurdity, comic absurdity, or just that day to day absurdity that we all live in. So, uh, yeah, I, thanks for asking that. Now I can now I have an answer for a question. That question. Yeah. So, so as I, as I look back on on your body of work, I, I don't know that every every book or piece of writing that you've produced would necessarily squarely address this idea of the absurd in life, but that would be one of the elements that people might encounter. I, I wonder what else. You, you've got clearly a pedigree in terms of crime, and some of that crime seems to live on the edge too. I mean, uh, uh, your first novel, this one here that won the London Book Fair competition, is about a sociopath manipulating a psychopath to kill a pedophile. I mean, how do, how do you come up with this? Well, uh Actually, it's based on a real case, and it's actually based on a case right here in Omaha, then expanded upon and fictionalized quite a bit so that it would be hard to even put, based on a true story, in front of it. it but it is. As I can't remember the writer who said, all fiction is truth. All good fiction is truth. <laughs> Whether I have a thing in crime was I had some friends who were crime writers and I uh, was taking, I had a chance at one point in my life to do nothing else but write. And I had that story in mind, not necessarily as a crime story. It's, it's a story. You know, there is a crime. So crime fiction is pretty wide. Is Macbeth a crime play? You know, you know, maybe it is. I mean, you could sell it that way, couldn't you? Um, uh, so Hamlet, there's a crime. You know, there's a crime. So no, I'm not putting my on the albino farm up with Hamlet or Macbeth. I'm just saying that in current literature, everything gets thrown into a genre. And so whether it belongs there or not, you know, Sarah Paretsky writes these great novels, uh, about crime, she writes great novels. You know how how else do you do you uh, you got everything has to be in a genre is what I'm trying to say. So my friend said you should try crime. You know you can you know you can make some uh, connections there and so create a central character and go with it. So I took some of the tropes of a crime novel and used that as a structure and that's that's it. That's somewhat transgressive story in some parts too. So, which means over the line, over the edge, a little bit, a little bit. I don't know that it's a comfortable place to be, but the edge does seem to be where you live. Well, actually, I live just a little off Maple, but <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, but that's where my mind is. My mind's always there, you know. Um, and you know, my life is really pretty conventional, I suppose. In, in a lot of ways, um, I have, uh, 
five children. I have uh, how many? Uh, four grandchildren. I had to stop and think. You know, I've I've been married to my wife for forty years. I, I you know, I I have a house. I have a car. I pay insurance. Blah blah blah. Uh, but that's just to allow my mind to go off of the edge, so they don't have to worry about those things. It's a blessing, you know. I work hard, and and uh, I don't know. So I, I hesitate. I know some real edge workers, some people, and I've known them over the years who really give everything to what they do. And, and they're working different kinds of creative spaces than I am. So I don't put myself out there as this, you know, as Toulouse-Lautrec, you know, <laughs> lost in the, the demi-monde, you know. <laughs> so, but, but you know, uh, I've been there. I visit. You know? So, so that I, I feel that's interesting, you know, that um, you've described this, what you've called a conventional life, mm. which makes me want to ask, where are you finding, where did you find the motivation to first begin expressing through writing or otherwise this, this idea of edge work, creative edge work? And, and maybe, you know, maybe that motivation came from you being a tourist to Edgeland in some way. <laughs> Well, and, and in many senses, I would, you know, as, uh, when I was uh, in college, something was going, this is the 60s, and this thing was happening in San Francisco. And so I registered for classes and then went to see what it was. I registered here, I mean, here at Creighton, and then left immediately after registering for classes to see, well, what is going on out there? And so... I wandered around out there and, and then returned here for final exams and got away with it. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's not an inspiring story. Kids, be sure to leave school. <laughs> but it was, it was the 60s and something was going on there. And so that was edgy, I get, but there was something that had to be seen. Uh, in 1968, the Chicago, uh, the Democratic Convention, there was something to be seen there. There was something to be experienced. There was something to be, if not understood, at least taken in. Uh, and, you know, there were, there were, uh, various, uh, what do you call them? Uh, <laughs> walkabouts in the desert with certain, uh, shamanistic mentors. That had to be experienced and, and were important. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you can go out on the edge. And then when you get a little older, too, you know, your, your body can't stand the physical edge anymore. And you got to just stay on the mental edge, you know, because some of those aspects are physically edge work, you know, physically dangerous, frankly. So, but, you know, I have a, I have a very vivid memory. And so I can call to mind any of those states of mind at any time. You know, I don't need to do a drug anymore. I can just remember, oh, yeah, what was that like? Boom, I'm there. I remember, you know, uh, I remember those days and, and uh, those bits, the, those things that were going on, you know. I 
popped a lot of pills But I've never touched nothing That my spirit could kill You know I've seen a lot of people walking around With tombstones in their eyes What was it that then called to you to to write? I like writing. Writing is pleasurable, so it's not like, you know, it's not like it's great, oh, gee, I think I'll sit in this chair and type away all day. But if you if you got something going, it, it's fun. There are, what did somebody say once? There are only two types of people who should write, people who have to write and people who have to write. And I kind of have to. You know, I, I really like it. Now, that doesn't mean you're writing ever always for publication or you're writing for this purpose or that. You write for yourself, I think, mostly. You know, we all go through experiences that need to be figured out in the aftermath, whatever those aftermaths are. And writing's a great tool for that, I think. I think music is. I know musician friends of mine do the same thing then through their music. You work through what you've been through, you know? You've been inducted into the Nebraska Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And it's not, it's not, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a smaller, uh, I'm honored. It's great. I was in a band called the Ogden Edsel Wahalia Blues Ensemble Mondo Bizarro Band, which started with just a bunch of college guys. And we had an accordion and then we had a guitar and then we had some wine bottles and a washboard and then we had a drummer and, and we it just kind of evolved literally organically. And, uh, we toured all, you know, all over the country, really. We put out an album out in LA and, uh, played all over out there and, and the record execs would all come to our shows cause they loved us, but they would say, we just don't know. We can't sell you, but we love you. And then, you know, so we, because we were weird because our, our, you know, Led Zeppelin had stairway to heaven. We had dead puppies, uh, or, you know, or thank God I'm a rich kid or, uh, daddy's money. So, you know, uh, but it was fun. It was, you know, I spent nine years on the road with that and we played obviously a lot around here as well. If you live in LA, you know, you don't make money in LA, you showcase in LA, you tour. And, uh, but great experiences again, and uh, and great friendships that that are still alive today. Do, do you still perform? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I when some of the guys get together occasionally at a little club, I, I might go up and sing a song. You know, uh, uh, "The World Is Gone" is my trademark, which is kind of it's this nihilistic ballad. So I'll do that. And we, you know, who knows what we might do in the, in the future. But performing's a young man's game. I, I, I know Mick Jagger doesn't agree, but it's, a, you know, certainly touring is. So. so so writing, you know, I look at the span of your writing. You've been writing for many, many years, and you recently published this latest novel. Uh, it came out in 2016. Writing is something that you can work at with your mind. So you talk about 
performing musical performance being this young man's game. It, it must be said, I'm not very musical at all. I've always been blessed by hanging around musicians. And, you know, I played washboard in the band. That's kind of the key and did a lot of background. Vo- and see, we were a rock and roll vaudeville act. So we would do a musical song, then a skit into another song. Then we were this Monty Python-esque thing that really defied categorization, uh, which was great fun. I mean, I you know, we had video monitors all over the state. So don't mistake me for a musician. Please, you know. I like the expression you just used, which is that that particular band, such as you might describe it that way, the whole thing, the whole performance defies categorization. And and that seems to speak to this idea again of, of edge work. To, just to yeah. – so you refuse to be deemed perhaps uh, a, a musician as such. But in some ways it seems to be because you refuse to be identified in any particular way. Well, I don't know. I'm primarily uh, defined by, uh, you're always defined by others, aren't you? I mean, at least to them, uh, you know, as a radio, since I've done radio for 40 years. So, oh, he's the, he's the radio guy. I hear that. Oh, you're the radio guy. Yeah. Okay. Great. Would you, would you rather be known as the weird guy that plums the depths of his imagination and comes up with? <laughs> <laughs> no, that takes too long to say, okay. Stuart. That, they, they wouldn't have time on the street. Uh, oh, you're the guy who plums the depths of the, of the psyche and then emerges through a somewhat altered id, you know, through, uh, no. Oh, you're the radio guy. See, that was over. And we could immediately shake hands and say, yeah, you know. I, you know, no, that's fine. That's it's what I've done. And, and it's an ethereal art, as Kent used to call it. Um, you know, he put oil or egg tempera on a canvas and I put words out into the air and they fly away from the planet at the speed of light. And so somewhere 40 light years away is the leading edge of the first word I said on the radio. And, but it's gone for the most part. I mean, there are tapes of some of our radio theater stuff like Space Commander Whack and uh, Lance Stallion or Mean Farmer, those things. So, uh, I mean, you know, some exist still, but generally it's an ethereal art. It's thing of the moment, you know, as McLuhan would say, no, we won't go into that. So maybe now should be the time that we talk about the radio career. Mm. And some of this was unfamiliar to me, but I, I was told that you were one of the area's initial, we'd call them maybe shock jocks now. Is that... Is that accurate? Is that am I missing? You no, know, and we we were classed by some as that because we were a shock to the system when, when in uh, 70, 79, uh we started. I diver Dan and I as Jim Seller, who lives a nice life out in California now. It was a friend from college. We were different, and we, you know, yeah, we'd mention politics, and we, but we weren't shock jocks in the sense that. People say now, oh, that that show is, you know, these jocks are shock jocks and they do a mature show. No, most shock jocks, by my definition, do immature shows. They laugh, to, uh, they laugh about, you know, boobies and this and that. That's not what we did. We could talk about boobies, but the kids in the backseat wouldn't know we were. You know, in other words, a multi-level kind of a thing. And uh, once again, you know... The, British humor so it was a huge influence on Dan as well. Uh, Dudley Moore and, and Peter, I uh, uh, can't think of the names now, but The Goon Show, 
uh, we did actually we were absurdists on the air. Uh, you know, we did a live broadcast of the uh, uh, on April Fool's Day of the Omaha Meat Parade, which was all float, floats made entirely of meat. You know, like the Rose Bowl, they're all made of roses. Ours were all made of meat and produced the entire parade with sound effects, and it lasted an hour. You know, with the smarmy announcers doing the, oh, here comes, you know, this. And that's what we did. We did extended sketch absurdist humor. Uh, you know, Space Commander Whack. There's nothing shocking in there, uh, except it's funny. It's funny. And that's all we ever went for. So, now nah, we weren't shock jocks at all, really. And when I did talk radio, I wouldn't do the style... Uh, you're expected to get some, get your audience mad. That's what talk radio is. Get them mad. What, what's your topic for today? Is that going to get them mad? So they call, I, I could never do that. So I would do this little homespun show, which lasted for a few years. And then 2001 happened and everyone wanted a, a real jingoistic show. And I couldn't do that. You know, I had ladies on calling from the libraries in small towns with recipes, you know, and lighthearted banter you know and we yell at each other enough and we could still have fun you know and, but that kind of went went to the wayside no never been a shock jock we talked politics too we're probably to the left of most of the area but it wasn't the center of what we did and uh and it wasn't in your face ever take a look at what i touched on something that seems to relate to to society at large you've, you've talked a little bit about the 60s and something that had to be seen and experienced and you talked a little bit about the nature of this early radio adventuring that you were doing and then how you you went through this process to get to 2001 and of course 9-11 happens and 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 the world seems to shift a little bit on its axis in some way it occurs to me that maybe you have a particular perspective on humanity and, and how you want to approach people being people. And so you didn't want to do the angry show. You didn't want to do this kind of immaturity. So 
it's not really even a question, but I'm just curious about how do you see the world around you? How do you see humans? I was, you know, we always see it through, I think everybody sees a little bit first through that lens you're given as a child. And you're given this lens by by your parents, uh, your siblings, uh, people in the mates in the neighborhood, uh, uh, your religion, big part of that lens. I was raised Catholic, and by my mother, I was always described from my earliest memory as, "This is my son; he's going to be a priest." I was the gift to the to the church, much as uh, the Medici gave a couple of their sons to the church. However, I wasn't slated for such high office. So I went through seminary, I was in a monastery, received a great education, Latin, Greek, classic. See, I'm on the edge, but I have this education that is comparable to the 15th century, you know. Yeah, you know, your hometown of Canterbury, I, you know, I, you know, I, I read the tales, uh, you know. Ed <laughs> uh, uh, Chaucer's always been one of my favorite. As a matter of fact, on the albino farm, we're digressing here is a direct reference to uh, uh there's a direct reference to Chaucer in there but uh, yeah i mean the can the tales are are mentioned in the book quite prominently so it's funny that you're from Canterbury but anyway back to the church's land so you get that then eventually you know uh, you morph out of that and you go to a jesuit you know i was a benedictine trained so then i went met the jesuits and here's another medieval history you know running into my head and uh and then the 60s happened, which drew this incredible opening, both to uh, uh, philosophies of the East uh, and, you know, just uh, and, uh, you know, we all are handed a copy of Jean-Paul Sartre at some point of our, in our life. And we go, oh, and we hide in a dark closet for a while because it's too much. And then we emerge again if we emerge. And, and so all of these lenses get placed, you know one on top of another and, and multiple focal points. I'm carrying the metaphor too far. But when you come through it all, you know, I, I see the world as this amazing place. And I see people as really amazing, you know, um, absurd in many ways. But amazing that we haven't all just gone like lemmings and jumped off a cliff. Because if you really look at history, uh, there are a lot of a lot more unhappy endings and happy ones. But still, we soldier on, and uh, we try our best. We try to find the right shirt to wear for that day and go. That's ninety nine point nine percent of the human beings on Earth. You know, it seems as if. We've got you to 2001 in the radio career. You didn't want to go in an angry direction at uh, the world, but most people locally now understand you as uh, this representative on classical radio. <laughs> and it seems as if you've closed the loop to this question already, which is you already had a classical background. But I'm, I'm wondering how, if, if that's accurate, you, you move from the I 70s to now in a pretty predictable arc in some way. No, it's not really predict. It's a series of little arcs. Okay. You know, there's no, this isn't the Golden Gate Bridge that spans that expanse. Mine is a little bridge or a little stream, you know, a slightly bigger stream. And there are lots of, lots of little character arcs, I, I think. And I think that's true of most of us, uh, save the great men in history. Uh, but as far as, you know, doing classical music, I, I do radio. I know how to do radio. 
And radio is very simple. No matter what you're doing, you sit down, you turn on the microphone, and you talk to one person. One per It's one to one. People have you in uh, their cars. They're alone in their cars. They're listening to you. People buy shower radios. You know, the, it was nuts. You still can't take your uh, smartphone into the shower. But, you know, you've seen them. You know, the, the radios next to the bed, clock radios. Those are gone, of course. But radio has always, at least in the era that I was part of, it's very one-to-one. It's very personal. People think they know you. You're, you are their friend. And that's the kind of relationship you set up. Now, you can play all sorts of music. You can do talk. When I first went to KVNO, they said, well, wait, you're a rock. You, you know, you do rock and roll. How can you possibly do Beethoven? Well, it's music. Music is music. All music is good, except polka, uh, Eastern European polka. Except for that. I mean, I really, I, I like Tejano polka. I'm German. I hate German polka. I can't listen to it. Except for that music. Everything else, uh, Duke Ellington said there are two kinds of music, good music and the rest. So I get to do Beethoven and Mozart. Which, in my classical education, yeah, I heard a lot of Bach with from the pipe organ, you know, in the monastery. Uh, and had a cousin who could really play the pipe organ. But I didn't really know that much about and And I still don't. I've been doing that for over 11 years now at KVNO. And I consider it my musical appreciation class. Because I'm learning, you know. And the thing about classical music is that people somehow think it's like you shh shh be quiet it's the the classical musicians are about to play we have to be serious no it's music franz liszt had groupies uh tartini it was crazy and would have arguments and in order to get the last word would shout out his last you know little shot and then jump out a second floor window and walk with a limp for the rest of his life but he won the argument uh, Chopin, notoriously bipolar, crazy, dating a scandalous novelist. You know, I mean, they were celebrities. They were musicians. They were insane. And some weren't. <laughs> some were. Some of them did opium and Lord knows what else. They're musicians. It's music. Does it either, as you listen to it, does it sound good to you? Does it reach part of you? It's the same thing as me introducing, uh, you know, traffic, a low spark of high-heeled boys. Do you like this? Or don't you? You know, it's music. That's all. You come to love certain sounds, Mahler, you know, or, you know, whatever. It's just music. So I just present it almost the same way I presented rock, only it can be quieter. And the cuts are really long. <laughs> There's a great Doonesbury strip about uh, the disc jockey in that, in that comic strip getting into classical. And he said, God, I should have done this years ago. Because he can have lunch. He can <laughs> read a book. <laughs> they call me a long, tall, shorty. 
Vincent Wasserman, yeah. also known as Otis Twelve. Mm-hmm. Tell us, Douglas more. Vincent Francis Wasserman, confirmation name. Finally, have a pope with my name. Uh, you know, we were starting this band, and you know, how can you be Douglas Vincent Wasserman in this weird? You know, I wish my name been Eric Idle because it's a perfect name. You know, it's great. John Cleese, very straight. Douglas Wasserman, yay! You know. It's German. It's way too German to be funny. You know, Germans, eh, we have a problem with that. So uh, I'd, I'd been nicknamed Otis in high school, actually, uh, playing football. There was a football player who played for the Chiefs. He's in the Hall of Fame now, Otis Taylor. Great receiver. I was the worst receiver ever. So it's like you call the fat guy slim. So I became known as Otis. And some of the guys who followed me up, to Creighton brought the nickname. I just, I, and you know, plus when we, you're that age, you hate your name. You, you hate your parents for naming you, you know. Why did they name me Stuart? You know, Doug, ugh, you know. You know, you always want to not, you assume a new identity. So I became Otis, and he really became an identity. Then Otis 12, and I really wasn't Douglas for a good number of decades. What, the, the 12? 12 has a lot. I have 30 stories explaining that, and I'm not sure which one's true anymore. I'm really not. When I played baseball, I was a good baseball player. My favorite player was Gil McDougal for the Yankees, and his number was 12. And when I played baseball, my number was always 12. Now, that's true. Whether I remember that when I took the name, I don't know. Uh, but we made it Roman numerals as well. Um, for a long time, I was XII. I went to... Uh, I was in Los Angeles at this thing. Uh, when I talk about edge work, uh, uh, I was working. I was reviewing movies for Channel Seven, and they sent me out off of one of these press junkets, um, and and to the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills to talk. You know, press junket. Everybody who's in the movie lines up, and on you go room to room. They shuffle you, and you re, you know, talk to this star and that star and that star. And it's, it's assembly line hell. And uh, especially for the poor celebrities who have to be interviewed without cease for eight hours. Um, but anyway, so that's what I was there for. And I go to the desk. I said, uh, yeah, Doug Wesselman, I'm here for, uh, you know, and she said, well, we don't have anything for you. Don't ever. Are you sure? Well, I'm also known as Otis 12. Okay, well, look, you know, we don't have anything for you. Hang on. They go in the back room. They come back out and said, ah, here, we found it. It's under, uh, Mr. Uh, here you are, Mr. Zai. <laughs> 
they had filed it under X for XII. So um, it was a good name. It served me real well. It served, but the danger, and this is edge work too, because you do become, you when you make up an identity in show business, it's easy to become that identity. Because if I went on the radio show with Diver Dan, he became Diver Dan. I became Otis 12. We were sharper. We were funnier. We were a little more cynical than, than I am in real life because you're creating a character and bringing that one person along with you into, you know, how you present it, you know. Um, cause no one wants to talk to a priesthood student at, you know, seven in the morning with rock music playing, you know, so it's, it's a slightly altered me. It's me. But it's an identity that you create for the public, which soon becomes your identity. And that can cause problems. It sounds slightly, in some way, just just a hint of dislocation. Yeah, it's dis- dissociation, I think, is a better word for it. It's a psychological thing that happened. You really almost become, in fact, you do become. I became Otis 12 for a good number of years. Caused some problems in my life. But we figure it out. See, that's the edge work again. How how long can I act like? How long can I really become Otis Twelve? You know, who had no problems. You know, he's not he's not the guy who would have problems. Uh, so you have to figure that out on the way too. You know, and uh, every artist I think creates a little bit of an identity. You know, there's some who go way over. You know, Dali. You know, becomes more a work of art than his art. You know, or at least and plans it that way. Picasso almost plans it that way so you become this character god i sound like i'm calling myself picasso or dali but it's the same kind of trap it's the same kind of trap that you see celebrities or performers get in it's it's a trap i'm getting the impression that otis 12 as an identity you've referred a couple of times in the past tense. So so how, how are you navigating this at the moment? Well, because Otis 12 had a great story arc. <laughs> you know, his character. I am still Otis 12, but I'm more comfortable being, because instead of me becoming him, I made, uh, I made him more me. Does that make sense? I found a way to make Otis 12 more who I really am. So there's just not much artifice. Is, is there a way that you can illustrate how you've kind of roped Otis 12 to you? Well, I think he, he's uh, he's a lot less cynical. I, I created him, he was a lot more cynical. Now he's skeptical. And skeptical is much closer to who I am, see. Uh, in fact, you know, there's really little room between us. I, mean, I, you know, I kind of merge. Maybe it's some of that science fiction story, you know, where the two beings become one. and Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I just... Somebody told me, well, it was a question of me, you've gotten wiser. And I said, no, I'm just uh, tired. And you should never confuse fatigue with wisdom. It's easier. It takes less energy for Otis 12 to be the real me rather than me try to be this Otis 12 character. Do you know what I'm saying? It takes more energy. I'm, I, I'm tired. Yeah, you know, you can bring them all together and have this, this, this peace. <laughs> That's a lot easier to live with. It seems to be a pretty easy leap to go from cynicism and/or skepticism to politics. 
And, uh, you know... You're- Cynicism in politics is a, is a recipe for disaster. Cynics don't believe anything. Thus, you can trick them into believing anything. I mean, that's an old saying, isn't it? Somebody said something like that. Because uh, cynics are too easy to fool. They really are. Uh, skeptics look for a fact, and wherever it leads them, you go there. You know, you can be, and skeptics can be wrong. <laughs> and then find out they're wrong and change because they're skeptics. They're always looking for evidence and facts. So I'd much rather be a skeptic than what I see most people now in politics and, or, you know, look at politics with cynical eyes and it just doesn't work. So just before we were rolling here, we talked a little bit about politics and being politically active. Mm. And I wonder if you would talk about your political activism well i mean i was I was much more active back in the day <laughs> you know and worked for bobby kennedy it was so funny bobby kennedy you know the 1968 primary here was important it was act- imagine that a nebraska presidential primary that actually it was important and uh bobby was running and clean gene mccarthy was running and my, I had friends working for Gene, and I was working for Bobby because, you know, I was still uh, the Catholic in me, you know, was uh, attached viscerally to the Kennedys, I suppose. But, you know, we didn't hate each other. Nobody, you know, we, we were intermingled. Paul Newman came to speak for McCarthy, came to Omaha to speak. He was big McCarthy guy. So the word goes out that Paul needs 12 uh, stalwart college men uh, to be his kind of bodyguards because, as you might imagine, crowds go kind of crazy when he was at the height of his career and uh, probably more hired yet to go. I don't know. He was just one of the greats. So I volunteered through a friend, and then, so I ended up being Paul Newman's bodyguard for uh, about five hours, you know, being absolutely torn at by female fans of Paul Newman while he tried to give a political speech in favor of Gene McCarthy. And it illustrated for me at that point, well, you know, celebrities probably aren't the best political campaign <laughs> because the crowd wasn't there to listen to anything he had to say at that time. Now, we maybe we've matured more, but, but it was a great experience. And, and uh, working for Bobby, and he wins, and, and then Bobby gets shot, and, you know, and Martin Luther King gets shot, and then Chicago happens, the convention there, that'll sour you. That will sour you on politics. That will make you a cynic and worse. So I was in that place for a long, long, long time. And uh, I, I don't think I really emerged again until I, uh, Bill Bradley started running for president. That intrigued me. Now, it turned out to not be a huge deal to me, but, yeah, it just it got interested again. But I'll admit, I was, I was swept along by this this tide when, when Barack Obama came along, and that kind of made me think, oh, golly, you know, maybe. And so that turned into a very mixed blessing, as we see, because now here, where we're at now, uh, it let loose a lot of... Uh, I mean, not his fault, but let loose a lot of forces. But I've managed to remain skeptical and, and in other words, thinking there's a way through this, okay? And as, as a grandfather, 
hey, I'm okay. If this planet heats up, I'm probably gone. But you know, now I've got that genetic bet down. You know what I mean? And some of them are over there close to Korea. And uh, all of a sudden, things take on more importance than you think they would. You know, you can't just, you know, let me go off to, uh, you know, uh, Taos and hide in the cabin for a while, you know. Uh, so I'm forced. I'm kind of forced to look at things again. And this year, God, this sounds so sappy liberal, but all these women run just, I, I looked at, I walked out of my house back in my driveway and I look, I got campaign signs up in my front yard. There, see, activist. <laughs> you know, and I've been blessed so I can give money a little bit, you know, nothing big. Trust me. Citizens United does not concern me. You know, I, I'm not close to my limits, uh, but I look at the signs and I notice I have five signs up and they're all women. And I wouldn't plan that way. And I like that. I, I told a friend of mine the other day who's been uh, a contemporary of mine as a woman who's been in politics and, and political or legal office for some 30 years. I'm saying, you know, it's the old cliche. It's now time for men to make the coffee and the sandwiches and print up the signs. And we'll be there when you get home, honey. Uh, and I really believe that. It's just time for a change. We had our shot. What is it? The last uh, 4,000 years running things, the men? Let's give them a decade. You know, wouldn't that be big of us? I just, I just think, you know, it's just great. That's what makes me think, okay, it's okay things there there's a change somewhere in there that that's worth waiting for i can't help but hear in some of your passion for this movement this time something that harkens back to how you described your time in the 60s and deciding that you needed to go to san francisco because something was happening there that had to be seen same yeah. in 68 in chicago something was happening that had to be seen and i'm wondering if you feel that these current years that we're living in, there's something that needs to be seen. Yeah, I mean, there's some things that need to be learned about this country, and they're all up front and center, and some of them are pretty damn painful. But dare I say, I think that's a good thing. It's the secret stuff that gets you. Uh, my my wife works with traumatized children, and, and sometimes from the most horrific things have gone on, and people say, you know, will sometimes say to her that, Oh, is it, what's wrong with our society that this happens so much more than it used to? And she said, no, it doesn't happen more than it used to. Now we know about it. You know, and that's where I think our, our political society is right now. This stuff's always been there. And if you had been around for a while, you know, it. you always knew it was there. For whatever the result, the battle is joined. You know, the battle is joined. And there's always another one. <laughs> you know, you don't, it just doesn't end. <laughs> it just doesn't end. We're close to our time. And by way of an invitation towards a conclusion, can you see a horizon? Can you see what sort of edges that you're moving towards for the next, the next period of your life? In my writing, I know what I'm trying. I, I, uh, I have I have an inverter collector of books, which that every 
six years, I have to sell a thousand books or give a thousand, you know, literally. Otherwise, you know, I will become on the, I'll be on the show hoarders. And, uh, but at least it'll be books and not newspapers. Um, but I, I just for one day just pulled Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin's Earth Sea out. And I read that. Now I'm working on a, I'm working on a fantasy. I want to write a fantasy. Just why? Cause I want to. And how can I find a new way of looking at that? You know, uh, how, how can I make that fresh? How can, if I can, I, I hope so, but, um, uh, we'll see, you know, <laughs> edge work is getting older becomes edge work. I think one of the things we were talking about off air too, when we started is with, we all have that vision of us, that final scene, Camille's death, you know, uh, you know, how will we die? It's, yeah, I want to write something about that or do something about that. I, you know, it, it may be poetry or whatever. Uh, but it's that link between, uh, oh, I don't want to get heavy, but it's eros and death. I mean, that's, you know, it's, that's the same thing really. And, and what's there? What's there? You know, you, know, you always hear people say he had to come to terms with his own death. Well, hell, I, I don't know if I you come to terms with, but I'm in that, you know, I'm coming up on 70 and, you know, and the actuarial tables start, <laughs> you start going, well, I'm on this end of them now, you know, when you get the mailer from the insurance company, you're way on the, way on the right, you know? So, uh, so yeah, I mean, just, you can, you know, there are a lot of amazing, uh, oldsters around to learn stuff from and and to uh, who are working the edge and uh have kept the spark alive and uh, the, the silver hair uh you know celeste butler uh well god if I, I, she's not that old I mean, <laughs> you know i just love people <clears throat> who you know so many artists and the the eager artists are so young and, and they should be there are few of us at the other end they're still doing stuff so you know, we might stumble upon things, uh, too. So I just want to, I just want to keep my head. I want to keep my head. Does that make sense? Yeah. I just, that's, that's my goal. Keep it as long as I can. Now is the time to say goodbye. Goodbye. Now is the time to yield a sigh. Yield it, yield it. Now is the time to wend our way Until we meet again Some sunny day Goodbye, goodbye We're leaving your skin to Goodbye We wish you fun goodbye to listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. You know there comes a time in everybody's life when they must say goodbye. <laughs> I've been in conversation with Douglas Vincent Wesselman, also known as Otis 12. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, more than a pleasure.
That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. Thank you.